3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. We are on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Um, Today is Tuesday the 20th of July and it is 7am and you're on air with me, Carnegie, Genevieve and Evie. Hi. Hello. (laughs) How is everyone? Uh... Feeling a bit Groundhog Day at the moment. Mm. We're, Melbourne is back in lockdown, so I'm back to looking at all my new little hobbies for the next week or so. Yeah. <laughs> Got any interesting ones? Um, look, I think I've, I'm, I'm going to revisit one from lockdown two last year. I might, you know, play the hits. Mm-hmm. Um, I made kimchi last year. I learned how to yeah. make that, so... Maybe I'll revisit that again. I need to make a new batch. Yeah, I feel pickles. like fermenting stuff. Yeah. And it it like, made me feel very cottage cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my one of my old housemates tried to make kombucha last year. <laughs> like an such a fail. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like sat there for like months looking oh, no. like so gross. Did it actually make the Yeah, it has like this I'm not gonna explain it very well. Um this like film or like jelly the scoby yeah the scoby yeah did it actually grow or did it just sit yeah, there it grew but like we tasted it no it was yeah it was really gross i, I like I, I don't mind fermenting but i just the idea of the scoby i've tried making kombucha yeah. once but it's it's a lot of like work it looks like a slug yes like in juice yeah <laughs> I, i'm not it. sure how and I'm not even a vegetarian, but there's just something about a living thing eating up the sugar in your drink that just makes me feel a bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry to any vegetarians who are listening because it really does look weird. Yeah. I don't mind it. <laughs> I like drinking kombucha. Yeah. It's just I think it's just seeing the big scoby. Yeah, that's fair enough. Isn't <laughs> um. So weather's gonna be super rainy and windy today. Possibly thunderstorms. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Good winter weather. Good weather to stay indoors. Yeah. I feel like that's a very much a lockdown vibe. Yeah. To be fair, I was at Princess Park on the weekend. It was pumping back to like lockdown. Um, like, yeah, so many people. It seemed like everyone was. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's going crazy in their houses and just yeah. used to get out and go get some fresh like there air. Were, yeah, there was like. lines to like grab a takeaway coffee. Um, at like every cafe, wow. <laughs> it's like Dan would be so mad if he saw this. <laughs> no one tell Dan. <laughs> Dan's gonna jump out at any minute. Yeah, um, I, I went for a walk along Merry Creek on mm. Saturday, and it was lovely. I think you just have to sort of take the semi-sunny moments when you can. Yeah, come out like a vampire. Sun's <laughs> <laughs> really bright. Yeah, I feel that. All right, well, we will be right back with the news headlines right after this. Yeah. 
nuclear armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Banned School to learn more and be part of History in the Making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enroll at icanw.org.au forward slash band school. That's icanw.org.au forward slash band school. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. You're on Tuesday Breakfast, um, and we've got a big show coming up today. Uh, first up, we will be listening to Jacob from Monday Breakfast, um, speaking with Dr. Patricia Ranald, um, who is the convener of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network about vaccine inequity. Uh, and then next up, we will be speaking with Felicity Marlowe, who is the co-founder and director of Rainbow Families. Evie, did you want to tell us a bit about that? Uh, yes, um, she's going to be speaking with us, um, talking about uh, the lack of questions about sexual orientation, gender identity and variations of sex characteristics, which is concerned LB- LGBTQI advocates at the moment, especially with the ongoing discussion with trying to protect um, rainbow families and mm. trans kids as well. Yeah, um, particularly this is in regards to the census happening in a couple months. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we'll also have some audio from yesterday's show, Queering the Air, um, where we hear from Didin and Alex about the urgent COVID-19 crisis in Indonesia, um, especially where LGBT and marginalised communities are supporting each other because they've been abandoned by the government. Um, as you can imagine, the crisis in Indonesia is increasing in nature mm. at the moment. Um, so it's really important that we talk about those issues as well. Absolutely. Um, so for headlines this morning, of course, first up we have the lockdown, <laughs> number five. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did you know? What yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've just talk- been talking about being stuck inside for no actual reason. <laughs> just like being inside <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so the lockdown was um, extended yesterday to question mark. Um, at this point, I think it looks likely until after the weekend, but I think Melbournians are used yeah. to a certain sense of uncertainty at this Nothing point. Nothing could sum up Melbourne lockdown more than maybe we'll <laughs> extend, maybe not, maybe, yeah. but most likely. But we don't know how long for. Big old question mark. Um, and the same um, rules apply. Is there a curfew? I don't believe so. No, but there is a, like a kilometre rule. I think. Yeah, it's five kilometre radius still. Yeah. Um, so no big trips to <laughs> wherever you out of that zone. So yeah. I was trying to think of something funny and I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one take a trip to Dalesford at this point. No. <laughs> um, but I think everyone's sort of, we've got the drill. We've, we've yeah. got it sorted. Yeah, um, and also just masks inside and outside. I've noticed, um, in, uh, I guess, when you're, like, going for a walk and you're like, do I have to wear my mask? I feel like there's a little bit of confusion, but, um, yeah, it is still inside and outside. Yeah, and speaking of lockdown, um, I don't know if you guys saw that uh, we've got a million Pfizer vaccines sent over, and... Um, 
we have uh, eight hundred thousand of those have been allocated to New South Wales, and ten to Victoria, and ten to WA. Please, <laughs> but I don't, I find that yeah a strange distribution. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Kind of like there's been a lot of discussions around, I guess, Scott Morrison's rapport with the New South Wales state government versus his rapport with the Victorian state government, mm. especially when it comes to, like, the benefits and, like, the, um, you know, uh, people getting money during lockdowns. Um, and a lot of people have kind of pointed the finger at, like, you know, he's playing politics, like, um, you know, liberal MPs uh, versus Labour MPs. He's going to favour the Liberal MPs. And, uh, yeah, I feel like this isn't really pandering towards (laughs) (laughs) that perception. Yeah. In in so far as vaccines, though, um, you know, the vaccines have been used to... Both vaccines have been used to great effect overseas, so I don't think we need to tell any of our listeners that if you can go get the AstraZeneca Mm -hmm. vaccine, you should do so. Um, there's lots of places in um, the northern suburbs in Melbourne which have, you know, vaccination clinics where under-40s can go and get it. Um, if you don't have any sort of pressing health concerns, um, yeah, by all means, um, especially considering the situation we're in right now, hopefully, you know, more people vaccinated means that we can have less lockdowns, yeah. fingers crossed. Absolutely. Um Next up is my favourite headline, which is that Katie Hopkins, <laughs> who should never have been here in the first place, has now is now going to be deported. Um, which is riveting because why why was she given a <laughs> visa why? to come at all? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I like I remember seeing like the headline that she was here and thinking, oh, okay, well here we go. I always assumed that Katie Hopkins, as a very racist commentator who's too racist for the United Kingdom, apparently. Um, would eventually come here and be imported into Sky News. But it turned out she was diabolical enough even to flout the the very meagre terms of her visa. Um, Like, I'm someone who is just like... I, I don't particularly like advocating to deport anyone, but no. in she, this is someone who should have not been here in the first yeah, place. Yeah, it's funny how, I mean, you know, you can be racist, you can be, you know, whatever, um, be extremely discriminatory towards refugees, mm. but as soon as you say anything about Australia's border controls, <laughs> you're out. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I, I just, I, I just admire the complete lack of self-control to be talking about how you're like wandering down the corridors in quarantine naked to try and scare people and Mm. not assume that is immediately going to cancel your visa like well done i mean is there there's like an interesting level of comfort there isn't there (laughs) kind of like this assurity that i will be okay Mm. which is which is yeah like you know what does that say about australia (laughs) yep it's true Uh, I, I'm, it's just nice for once that someone who's actually done something terribly wrong actually has faced consequences for yeah. it. It's, even though it's a strange circumstance where the same people who have asked her to leave kind of brought her here. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Look, big, uh, Celebrity Big Brother is still going to be super racist, so... Oh, yeah, no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Oh, dear, this country. <laughs> um, and also, we should probably mention yesterday... Uh, was the start of Eid al-Adha, and which goes to the end of this week, to Friday, um, which unfortunately has come with a report uh, 
for on SBS News, which says that 80% of Muslims in Australia say that they have experienced discrimination for being Muslim, which is an extremely high percentage mm. uh, and quite worrying. Um, you know, I don't... It, it's The article goes into how a lot of uh, Muslims still feel that Australia is a safe place for them to come, even though this is the level of discrimination which is also super telling about what people might be leaving, why people might be coming here. Mm. Uh, yeah, I just, I found that to be, that percentage to be extremely high. It, it's shocking how, I mean, it's not a surprise in considering that we've had 20 years of extremely racist border policies and social policies that have been often explicitly targeted towards, um, you know, anyone perceived to be Muslim often. Um, but it's it's still very shocking and humiliating to see that like the percentage is so high in Australia yeah. and you know that the conditioning works. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of that fear mongering that is still going on in terms of um, uh, being prejudiced towards uh, the Muslim community. Yeah, I, yeah. It's half of more than a thousand Muslims surveyed. Um, up to December 2019, said that the discrimination occurred when dealing with law enforcement. 48% said they were targeted in workplaces or when seeking employment, and 29% said it was in educational institutions. So mm. it's kind of across the board, and I'm sure it ranges from really subtle to really overt, you know, mm. Um, mm. which is really not where we want to be in 2021 Definitely. in any way, shape, or form. Um yeah, and the, the Australian Human Rights Commission report, um, which consulted with Muslim community members and leaders across Australia, uh, carried out up to February 2020, um, also found one in every four Muslims in Australia is too afraid to speak up when they or someone they know experiences mm. discrimination. Um, they are, of course, encouraging people to speak up, but that is a fraught thing. I don't think it's always safe. I don't think it's always possible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, with any minority, um, it's difficult to create a platform where you can voice any sort of opinion, and especially being in a place like Australia where our, our track record for these type of things is pretty terrible. Um, uh, I can imagine that it would be really difficult. Yeah, I feel like it. Ha- it's a broader thing of, like, othering people, mm-hmm. Different minorities and religions uh, on a much bigger scale. So until that kind of there's a change in that bigger picture thing, I think it's quite difficult to to speak up. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we we are fortunate, at least in Melbourne, that there are um, you know Muslim communities are so welcoming, even to you know in the country that they've been discriminated against. And I think it's up to us to sort of educate ourselves in any sort of way to, you know, become, you know, both welcome them into the community and be part of their communities um, and to, you know, especially with things like Eid as well, you celebrate with them and you understand it. Yeah. Well, uh, the Race Discrimination Commissioner, Chin Tan, has said it's time for the federal government to establish a national anti-racism framework, which I think is probably long overdue. Mm. Um, I think that you know, it would encourage people to report racist attacks. There would be support, much more visible support 
um, on a much bigger level, I think that would be a great step. Yeah, and calling racism for what it is when it happens. Well, exactly. Yeah. And not getting Katie Hopkins to come to the Yes, <laughs> certainly not. Um, I wanted to go overseas for a little bit, uh, do my international politics stint <laughs> this morning, and just talk about uh, Cuba. Um, I won't talk in great detail because I actually have a really exciting interview next week um, with an expert on Cuba. But I'm not sure that people have seen in the news that Cuba is experiencing some of the biggest mass protests in their history um, currently. Uh, you know, a lot of it has been driven by COVID um, and economic uh, downfall. There's a lack of food and a lack of medication that's able to come into the country um, there's also been, that mean, they've taken a lot of, a massive hit from lack of tourism, um, where Cuba is predominantly tourism dependent. Um, but pretty much there's been a whole bunch of, uh, protests, protesting to the government to, you know, um, do something and give, uh, them benefits or there's also been, um, a lot of power shortages and, um, power cuts as well adding to it. But a lot of, I've noticed a lot of the media is kind of focusing in on the, I guess, socialist and communist aspect of this <laughs> being like, well, you know, they have a dictator, they're a communist country, like this is why, um, this is happening and kind of labeling it in that way. But, um, a lot of, uh, media isn't, uh, I mean, apart from, you know, the conversations doing a really good job at this, but um, isn't really talking about, I guess, the sanctions that have been in place on that the US has put on um, Cuba for years and years and years, which restricts them from trading and like um, making money internationally and kind of um, inaugurating into the global economy, which makes it really difficult to like get food and medication. Um, it's blaming Cuba for the problems that they have instilled by having sanctions in the first place. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you see it with Iran, um, you see it with Venezuela, like a lot of these countries that the US kind of goes, nah, we don't agree with that, um, but kind of needs them as, you know, to like, I guess, flex their dominance. Like, I feel like the US is still... It's it's new kind of imperialism, basically. For sure. And, yeah. like, the US, like, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, like, they're still kind of annoyed that, you know, I hate to, for lack of a better word, but, like, they didn't, I guess, dominate that situation. <laughs> um, so. oh, oh, plus, they, they still have a torture camp in Cuba. They still have Guantanamo mm -hmm. Bay. Mm -hmm. So um, I personally, if I were the US, I would not be saying a peep about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there's been, um, you know, the US hasn't come out in support. Um, they have also, in January 2021, this is an interesting one, uh, made the decision to return to Cuba to the US State Department's list of state sponsors of terrorism. Um, uh, at the time, this actually, this little sneaky uh, <laughs> decision didn't receive a lot of attention. But um, next week, I will be going into greater detail about exactly, um, I guess, the history of uh, Cuba and how it's kind of led up to this point. Um, but yeah, it's pretty, I mean, even with talking about Haiti last week, 
um, Cuba and like all of these countries, you know, it's not necessarily like what's going on within their own political structure. They're responding to um, the global context. They're responding to oppression put on them through other state actors. Um, that makes it really difficult for them to have their own sovereignty and self-determination, especially with Haiti and as well with Cuba. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time the U.S. is kind of at the forefront of this and refuses to take any responsibility as per usual. <laughs> and media refuses to kind of label it as so. So, Well, I look forward to your interview next week. Yeah, should be good. <laughs> oh, one more piece of news. The Olympics are starting this week. Oh, <laughs> Everyone's just sort of been waiting to see whether it's going to be cancelled or not, but I guess it's going ahead. Um, so far, I've seen there's two cases of coronavirus yeah. that's in the Olympic Village. Um, the Australian Olympics Twitter account was like really excited. Like they were like making tweets about how there's zero cases in their part of the village. Why would you... Why would you boast about that? You're in a country that has got rising cases. Seems like a bad post to make. Yeah, even even just in general. Yeah, just just, just generally, I feel like it would be a bad idea to gloat about that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of athletes have expressed concern and are anxious about even being overseas. Um, I'm not entirely sure all of them are vaccinated either, which... <laughs> Feels bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, I, I, you know, sports people in Australia have been reasonably sort of kept in bubbles to keep them getting sick. Um, that also went um, pear-shaped this weekend because some footballers got a, were on an exposure site. So, yeah. And it's unclear whether any of them are vaccinated either. So. But important to note that the Bulldogs won. <laughs> they <laughs> did. the Gold Coast. <laughs> it was great. It was touch and go for a minute. Though. I'm looking forward to the really big one. Of Bulldogs in Melbourne. Absolutely. Mm. Do you think the Bulldogs have got it this year? Absolutely. <laughs> They're going <laughs> that, really well. Without a doubt. <laughs> All right. Well, we will be right back after this. Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, IPAN, has launched a national people's inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. The census is happening this August. Your answers help make a better future for all of us. Like the number of babies, so health services know where we need mums and bubs programs. And the number of people in communities to plan local transport services. 
you can help tell our story. Look out for instructions on what to do. For more info, visit census.abs.gov.au. Authorised by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. All right, well, next up we might play a track. Um, This is a band from Bogota in Colombia, but based in Brooklyn, New York. Um, They are called Salt Cathedral, and this song is from their debut album, Charisma. Salt Cathedral with 
to Kiero Olvida from their debut album Charisma. All right, we're going to play um, a conversation that uh, happened between Jacob and Dr. Patricia Reinald that was played on Monday Breakfast yesterday. Um, they spoke about vaccine inequity um, and the call to support the proposal for a temporary waiver of patient monopolies on COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. More than 50,000 Australians have signed petitions asking the Australian government to support changes to international trade rules. These changes would help low-income countries access vital COVID-19 vaccines. This is following a proposal put to the World Health, sorry, the World Trade Organization by South Africa and India in October 2020 for a temporary waiver on the trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights agreement otherwise known as TRIPS, which is a key piece of international legislation that influences the global supply of vaccines. Joining us now is Dr. Patricia Reynold, the convener of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network. Patricia, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can you start by telling us a bit about the process for a country to secure doses of COVID-19 <coughs> vaccines? Yes, well, it's a complicated process because pharmaceutical companies have a 20-year monopoly over each new vaccine. And so that means that each government has to negotiate with each pharmaceutical company over both the price and the, uh, half a dozen pharmaceutical companies at the moment therefore control access to these medicines. Um, and it, it's for this negotiating process means that the rich countries are first in the queue but uh, and have secured access in many cases, but even Australia is having difficulties getting supplies, as we all know. For low-income countries, um, it's calculated that none of them will get... Um, well, sorry, most of them won't get access until after 2023 or 2024, um, just because, there's A, there's not enough supply and, B, there's this long queue of governments that have to negotiate. <clears throat> so the proposal for the waiver of the WTO rules is to say that um, for the it's a temporary waiver for the duration of the pandemic that um, the um, rules will be suspended for patents or monopolies on vaccines so that low-income countries can actually... Um, have manufacturing hubs themselves, countries like India and South Africa, which already produce a lot of generic medicines, and you can therefore increase, increase global production and make vaccines more available to everyone. Right. So by the sounds of it, that's quite a monopoly on, on the vaccine supplies. And am I right in saying that the lower-income countries can't access this because they have less bargaining power than the, the richer countries? Yes, that's part of it, but it's also just um, the technicalities of the process. Um, under current WTO rules, they can apply to the company to waive the waiver. Sorry, to waive the patent. But if you have, if you have to do that company by company and country by country, it just takes an awful long time. So what's being proposed is a blanket waiver for low-income countries on the monopoly rules so that they can go ahead and get access to the know-how and, and so on to produce the vaccines. Of course. Um, and can you tell us a bit how has this vaccine inequity 
affected people living in these lower-income countries? Well, if you look at Indonesia, for example, there's a terrible crisis there at the moment. And um, thousands of people are dying every day and they just don't have the vaccine supply to vaccinate people. Um, the same is now happening in some Pacific Island countries, like Fiji, and in some African countries that there's a terrible uh, situation as well. So we're seeing all over the world people are dying because they don't have access in low-income countries to vaccines. There is a charitable um, process called COVAX where countries can donate, rich countries can donate vaccines, but these numbers are really very small compared to the need. Um, there's over 6 billion people in the world, so you need over 11 billion doses of vaccines. And um, the amounts that are being donated <coughs> by richer countries are um, in the hundreds of thousands to particular companies, uh, to, to particular um, low-income countries. So they're, ju not just me they're just not meeting the needs. Definitely. I think there's a lot of conversation at the moment in Australia about uh, the slow vaccine rollout, but, but not a lot of discussion about, you know, what's happening in other countries. Um, and I know there's quite a lot of support um, on the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network, um, particularly from the, the church and civil society groups, um, for some changes to these World Trade Organization rules. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. In fact, today, 15 organisations have written to the um, ministers, government ministers, the Minister for Trade and Foreign Affairs and to shadow ministers, um, asking them to support this waiver to the current WTO rules. It's actually going to be discussed at an important meeting tomorrow, the 20th of July, um, of the WTO. Um, the proposal has been negotiated or discussed in detail over the last couple of weeks and tomorrow there's an actual meeting um, of the what's called the Trade in Pro Intellectual Property Rights Council which is going to um, further discuss and perhaps we hope make a decision about this or a recommendation. <clears throat> the um, organisations involved include um, groups like AFTINET and the ACTU, but also a broader group including Amnesty International, the Uniting Church, uh, the um, National Office of Catholic Bishops in Australia for um, Justice and Peace and the Environment, uh, Oxfam uh, and a number of other organisations, the Salvation Army, um, as well as um, Friends of the Earth and um, other aid and development groups like um, ActionAid, also the National Peak Body for Aid and Development Groups, the Australian Council for International Development. So you can see that's quite a wide range of both church, aid and development, union, environment groups. They represent millions of Australians and they're calling on the government to support this change because so far our government hasn't um, said that it will support the change. Absolutely. So quite a large number of organisations here lobbying for that change. You mentioned there was a meeting tomorrow um, at the World Trade Organisation. Can we expect there to be any uh, decisive outcomes from this meeting? 
Well, we hope there will, but unfortunately, the World Trade Organization is a slow-moving body and it also works on consensus. Now, that means that all countries have to agree. Um, at the moment, it has 194 members and at the moment over 100 of them are supporting the waiver. But And uh, the meetings that have been taking place up till now um, have been taking place as negotiations, so they're behind closed doors. So we don't really know what the outcome will be tomorrow. Um, but um, it is possible that um, if they get to 120 organisations supporting it, then they can have a majority vote. And that's why um, we're urging our government to support it. Uh, and we're also... Um, there's work going around... Sorry, work going on all around the world in different places, um, lobbying governments to support the waiver. Yeah, of course. So we know that Australia is, is one of the main culprits who might not be supporting the waiver. Um, do you, can you tell us a bit more, are there any other countries that are in particular against this waiver? Well, predictably, the main countries who are not supporting it are actually the um, richer countries, and they're the ones where the main pharmaceutical companies are based, except for the U.S., um, the Biden administration has come out in support of the waiver for vaccines. But um, the um, European Commission, which is the trade negotiating body, which is very influenced by Germany, has not yet supported it. And Germany, um, of course, is a big centre of um, pharmaceutical production. Um, also, Japan hasn't been supporting it. So... Um, there's been a lot of work going on um, in those countries um, to lobby those governments. Um, but the pharmaceutical companies do have a lot of influence and they've been actively lobbying against the waiver. Mm, absolutely. So quite a lot of work that's being done at the moment. Uh, what can our listeners do to support efforts to change these trade rules? Well, you go to our website, aftinet.org.au, and you can send a letter. Uh, it connects you to a, um, a website where you can just put in your postcode and send a message to your local MP. If you want to, you can also send a message, the same message to the Prime Minister um, or the Minister for Trade. And um, thousands of people have already... Um, done that, gone through that process of sending a, me a message to their local MPs and we will also be um, sending letters to all MPs about this issue this week. But I do urge people to send a message to your local MP because that puts additional pressure um, on the Minister. The letter yeah. asks the Minister to, sorry, the letter asks the local MP to uh, tell the Minister to support the waiver. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Patricia. Definitely some actions that we can all take uh, towards more vaccine equality. Thank you. Okay, that was Dr. Patricia Ranald there from the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. 
Queerways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queerways, a 3CR supporter. Tuesday breakfast and it is 7.42am we're going to play a track next by a four piece uh, Brooklyn band called Cowbells um, which one of their members describes as a living, breathing, healing grooving moment um, this song is called Hunt the Beach
that was Hump the Beach by Kelbelt, and we will be right back after this. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 500. Wellways supports 3CR. So yesterday on Queering the Air, uh, we heard from Didin and Alex about the urgent COVID-19 crisis in Indonesia, especially how it's affecting LGBTIQ and marginalised communities supporting each other amidst government abandonment. So we have a short interview here. Um, Take a listen. I'm joined on Queering the Air with Alex and Didin, who are going to be talking about communities rallying in response to the COVID crisis in Indonesia. Would you first, both of you, like to talk a bit about yourselves? So the, situa- the pandemic situation in Indonesia this year is worse than last year. Um, the government have uh, public policy, actually many times, and now uh, we, are, we are on PPKM Darurat. Um, it's a limitation... Uh, of the area, so people cannot go um, in certain area, you know, uh, and um, the pandemic is getting worse uh, because uh, there is less support from the government to people, to poor people actually, um, who earn uh, their daily income. Uh, so because they cannot work outside, so they cannot get income, and um, this pandemic turned not only on uh, health problems, but also the uh, hunger for for the community. So that's the situation. Thank you for that. You're also the CEO of Harapan Fayan. Could you talk about that NGO? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, Harapan Fayan is an organization that supports urban poor people. Uh, urban poor people is uh, queer, uh, sex worker, um, street vendors, street musician, or anyone uh, who who are poor, you know. And um, our organization focus on um, fulfilling uh, their rights or encourage them to get the rights. Thanks for that, Alex. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi. Um I am, well, I'm currently living in Canberra, but I used to live in Melbourne and actually did stuff uh, at 3CR as well. Um, And then I lived for two years in Indonesia and I was a volunteer with the federal government's AVID program. Um, And I worked in a couple of NGOs that were doing stuff around um, 
kind of gendered violence and sexual health and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and um, just sort of got involved in some other projects in my free time with some different community groups in Georgia. Um, yeah, and it's just a pretty lively place and there's lots of um, different um, organisations and groups doing different stuff. So, uh, yeah, there was lots of stuff to get involved in. Thank you for that, Alex. So before going into more about what's already been mentioned, could we talk for listeners who might not be aware a bit more about the social and political context for queer communities, LGBT communities in Indonesia? Yogyakarta is a uh, student city. A lot of uh, students come from uh, another city to go to study in Yogyakarta. So most of the LGBT community is young, in young age. But uh, there is also an uh, elderly group in uh, Yogyakarta. Um, and most of them working on the street, like uh, street musicians, um, street vendors, and uh, sex worker. you know. Um, most of the other queer uh, feel comfortable living in Jogja because uh, they uh, have a lot of support and the society, um, what is it, uh, like familiar with, with LGBT. But um, this uh, pandemic um, changed the situation because it's difficult for the queer uh, LGBT uh, to work, especially for the elder and most of the uh, young queer uh, they are students, you know. Um, when they uh, suffer from COVID, they have no support from from the people around, you know. And actually, it's quite difficult for for me, um, who are organizing the community in here, uh, give a support for the young uh, queer because some of them is not really really too open about the sexuality, and because of that, it's difficult for them to get the support. Yeah, thank you for that, Dylan. So is there anything else you wanted to add, Alex? Yeah, maybe just that um, I guess the experience of being a queer person in Indonesia is probably quite different from what we experience in Australia, which is, um, I think, in general terms, um, I think there's um, more acceptance um, for being queer in Australia, especially maybe for um, people who are gay or bisexual or, um, yeah, and maybe there's more, I think there's probably more discrimination against trans people. But, um, yeah, I think that level of societal acceptance isn't really there in Indonesia. So it, it is hard for people to be open and it is hard for people to organise as a community as well because um, there are some barriers to, say, like publicising events and that kind of thing um so yeah there are just some more challenges there um yeah and i think maybe like the political context and different ways that religion play out in politics sometimes um can make it difficult to do things out in the open i don't know would you agree with that didin yeah religion uh religion affect the most aspect in uh, being queer in Indonesia because um, people in Jakarta uh, follow their belief uh, very very much, you know, and um, in most of the mainstream religion like forbid LGBTIQ or queer, so um, it's not queer is 
it's not really have a space uh, to express. But uh, still, we have a space, um, although now it's getting uh, narrow, you know. And also politics, you know, uh, sometimes the government, the politician use uh, LGBT to gain their uh, politic, politician support, you know. For example, uh, most of the Islamic part, political party, they express their hate to LGBT to gain masses, and it create the violence uh, in the society, you know, mm. create the hatred, yeah, like that. Mm. Thank you for that context. So in terms of the pandemic, there's been a lot of government abandonment in terms of there isn't support for LGBT communities, street kids, sex workers. What has been the community responses to like the complete loss of income if people test positive and need to isolate? And would you like yeah, to um, yeah, introduce the campaign? So, so I, I mentioned before that there's no support from the government for um, this community. Um, and um, so Alex and I initiate to give uh, emergency funds for the people who need it. Um, the purpose of it is um, so they don't have to go out for work, so they can uh, stay at home. So if they stay home, then uh, it will help uh, Indonesian to um, decrease the rate of uh, the COVID. Alex, would you like to talk further about how the fundraiser came about? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think um, uh, that, well, the original, um, the initial thing started when um, me and Didin had been talking over the past few weeks about um, you know, what we could do, was there anything that we could do to support people and trying to kind of think of a way um, to help. Um, and then about a week or so ago, um, there was a group of um, kind of like a community organisation for trans women. Uh, was it the, um, like the Trans Women um, Resource Centre, did you say, Didin? Yeah, Waria Crisis Centre. Like transgender woman, uh, yeah. 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 Um, so they had been sort of communicating with a group of trans women who had been, um, uh, who the majority of them had tested positive to COVID and they needed to isolate at home, but they didn't have um, basic essentials and they didn't have money to pay their rent. Um, yeah, and you know they didn't want to tell anyone that they were COVID positive because there was a chance that they might be discriminated against or maybe kicked out of their homes. Um, so that group of people started doing some fundraising and then Didin and I got involved in that. And um, I just asked a few friends and family um, here in Australia if they wanted to each, you know, chuck in 50, 100 bucks. Um, and everyone was really kind of keen to help and to get involved. And, um, yeah, within a day or two, we had raised enough money for that particular thing. And so I kind of said to Didin, like, what if we could do this on a bigger scale and, um, yeah, like continue to help trans women who need it, but also expand that out to other groups of people who are also doing it tough and, um, yeah, so it just kind of grew from there, but there was just so many people in 
um, in Australia in, you know, my friends and family who were really keen to help out and they wanted to do something but they didn't know what to do. And so when this opportunity sort of came up, everyone was pretty, yeah, kind of all hands on deck. So I had lots of help from different people with, yeah, sending the fundraiser around and promoting it and helping to write press releases and that kind of thing. So, yeah, so that's basically how it came to be. Awesome. So, Dylan, would you like to talk more about how things are looked on on the ground? Because I've read with your media release that Harapan Vian is distributing financial aid, masks, hand sanitizer, and information. So it's like a complete abandonment by the government that communities stepping in and having to do all this. Yeah, yeah. I um, I I see that there's no um, uh, support from the government, so people try to help each other. That's what happened. But uh, sometimes. Um, the people do not reach the certain community, especially the marginalized people. So um, that's the reasons why Harapan Fian uh, try to support the marginalized people, especially queer and uh, other communities. And I found that actually um, this kind of people aware about the risk when they go out in the pandemic. Um, so they prepare with masks, with um, hand sanitizer and everything. But they are facing the situation that they have to go out uh, because if they, can, if they cannot go out, they cannot get an income. Um, so that's the situation. As in, and also they fully aware that um, this day when they have to work out, they have to work more than before because a lot of places... Uh, is quiet now, is closed, you know, so uh, that's what happened. So the economic situation um, is, uh, is very bad, lately for the communities. Yeah. Can I just jump in yeah. with a story there that Didin was telling me the other day um, about uh, he was saying that some of the kids who live in his area who usually busk for their for work and to earn an income and that's what they live off day to day the government had closed a lot of the main roads so the areas that they were usually yeah. busking in they couldn't access anymore so they were having to travel quite far to go to other areas where they could busk yeah, yeah. and try and make a living and it's kind of instead of helping the situation it's making it worse because it's you know pushing people to travel further and to like mix in communities that they wouldn't usually visit and um, yeah, and these people don't have... COVID restrictions across Victoria have changed. New changes have been introduced to slow the spread of COVID-19 by reducing the number of people leaving their homes and moving around Victoria. This means that you can only leave your home for one of five reasons. Shopping for necessary goods and services, care and caregiving, including medical care and getting a COVID-19 test, exercise, authorised work and permitted study, or to get a COVID-19 vaccination. Victorians may also leave home to visit their intimate partner their single social bubble buddy, or in an emergency, including those at risk of family violence. You must stay within five kilometres of your home for shopping and exercise. This limit does not apply to work when giving or receiving care, getting a COVID-19 vaccination, or visiting an intimate partner or your single social bubble buddy. Face masks must be worn indoors and outdoors whenever you leave home unless you're working alone. These actions will protect our loved ones, friends, colleagues, healthcare workers and the community. 
and you're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We just had an interview uh, talking about the urgent COVID-19 crisis in Indonesia, especially with regards to it affecting LGBTQI and marginalised communities supporting each other. Next up, we have a song by Peach PRC, who is an Australian pop singer, songwriter and former stripper. This is her debut single, Josh. Uh, quick language warning, um, if you don't love bad language, just turn the radio off for one minute. <laughs> <laughs> Attention to John. Attention to John. Attention to John. Attention to John. your business working out, such an untrue your clown, how to win friends, influence them, let you down, and I heard you're getting drunk at bars, to overdrawn credit card bills, slot machines, casinos, what's your deal, cause you're Seventy innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public 
but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, that was PHPRC with Josh. All right, so the census is happening in just a month's time, uh, which is, you know, the national survey that runs every five years by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, um, which has always been an important source to understand Australians and make sure they are properly represented. Uh, it aims to count everyone in the country where all Australians are required by law to take part. After the 2016 census, uh, the ABS asked what questions people would like to see in the next census. So they are now incorporating new questions around illness and defence force participation. However, the lack of questions about sexual orientation, gender identity and variations of sex characteristics has concerned a lot of LGBTQIA plus advocates. Joining us to talk about this is Felicity Marlowe, the co-founder and director of Rainbow Families and an LGBTQIA plus activist from NAM. Thank you so much for joining us, Felicity. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I really don't think I've done your introduction justice. Would you be able to just introduce yourself to our listeners as well? Sure. So, look, I've done um, been involved in Rainbow Families activism and advocacy for about 20 years. Um, particularly involved in looking at social and legal reforms in Victoria, as well as dealing with some of the federal issues that, as Rainbow Families, we found really problematic. So we ran a campaign in 2016 um, to stop the proposed plebiscite, which was successful. And then in 2017, um, I represented Rainbow Families in a High Court challenge against the Postal Survey which unfortunately we lost um, and the postal survey continued. But yeah, so there's been a lot of activism and um, visibility through Rainbow Families getting involved, telling people we've got our kids, think about our kids. Um, Yeah, and so that's sort of, I guess, a broad stroke of what I do. And I now have three teenagers. Um, Oh, wow. (laughs) During lockdown as well. Today, (laughs) trying to get them really interested with their concept of more remote learning so we'll see how that goes oh well good luck to you a lot of sympathy coming your way (laughs) um just on that note uh how did you become i mean you uh brushed on it just then but um how did you become involved in advocating for queer trans and non-binary parents um and diverse families well in the age-old way of um is do you find a problem? We, my partner and I went, oh, this is a problem. We want to be part of the solution so that we can have our kids. We're involved in this group called um, Prospective Lesbian Parents in 2002 and it coincided with an opportunity made by the Victorian Law Reform Commission to um, provide submissions from the community on proposed changes to assisted reproductive treatment, adoption and surrogacy in Victoria. So we use that opportunity to mobilise the um, LGBTIQ prospective parent and parenting community um, and I guess, you know, really engaged our community in learning how to write submissions to an inquiry and then after that we learnt and taught 
each other and ourselves, how to tell our stories in the media, how to go and speak to our MPs. So it took a, quite a while, and by the time the law changed in 2008, we actually had two-year-old twins and a six-month-old. So, like, from wow. having no children in 2002, yeah, we created a whole family during that entire process. So, um, yeah, and us and many other prospective parents, grandparents, took, engaged in multiple different community-based actions. And, yeah, it was a positive result. But as usual, there's always families and circumstances in different ways. We created families that weren't addressed at that time, so things like adoption didn't come um, into effect in 2000, till 2016. So there's a wow. lot of lag time um, that people don't realise, I think. They make assumptions that, oh, you've married, you can get married, everything's changed. But there's heaps of issues still surrounding the um, rights and responsibilities of parents that aren't resolved. That's actually brought up a really important point that when it came to marriage equality, I think a lot of people who were drawn to, you know, advocating for the cause kind of forgot that there are a lot of things involved when it comes to families. And um, when when it just comes to marriage equality, it's not just all about changing that legislation. There's a lot of things that that are involved with changing the legislation for parents. Um, for, you know, transgender parents as well. Um, there, there's lots of very specific things involved that still need advocacy from the queer community. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you can be married now, which is fantastic, regardless of gender. However, if you were then accessing a early parenting service, they will still ask questions like, what's your sex? And they're all, mm-hmm. what's your gender? And lock you up. They don't get it. They can't cope with the idea that um, you might be in a um, monogamous, I mean, in a married relationship with one person, but you might live in a polyamorous relationship with another family or you might have the donor um, involved or it might be a you know community of co-parents. There's, marriage is one thing, but it has the um, idea of complex families of intended families being beyond this sort of two people married for life with children and a picket fence and a puppy, that image is still so strong. And in some ways, the idea of marriage and marriage equality has held on to that idea and stopped people being much more expansive and inventive about the kind of ways we do create our families in the queer trans communities. For sure. And I think this leads on to the conversation about the census particularly, you know, being a national survey that does uh, drive a lot of policy after, um, you know, the statistics come out. Um, Would you be able to explain, I guess, what are the concerns um, for the LGBTQIA plus community with what the ABS has left out of the census? Well, one of the key ones that we've um, raised in many reviews (laughs) over the years has been that only the person completing the survey on that one night gets to say who lives in that house that night. And if your children are part of a co-parenting arrangement and they aren't living with you that night, then they don't get counted. They get counted at the other co-parent's home. So in some ways, you're not giving the full picture of how many children are co-parented successfully in intended relationships across multiple homes. So we know lots of families have these arrangements that 
are not the same as separated heterosexual families or, or queer families that are separated and repartnered. These are intentional co-parenting arrangements where children have many homes and people who care and nurture them. So the survey, the census, given the structure of it, doesn't allow you to tell that story. So we think that um, falls apart, doesn't tell us the diversity of family life in Australia. And, and it doesn't allow us to find those success stories either, unless we do our own advocacy. Um, another one is that it doesn't allow you to explore or explain the complexities of sex, sexuality and gender within your relationships. It's, um, the only, there was a process last um, census where you could register to get a number to complete a separate area of the census if you wish to explain further your, I guess for want of a better word, your non-binary status, like you could say male or female on the survey, on the census, but you if you wish to explain further your um, gender, and it mixed it, mixed it all up, so I'm feeling like I'm saying all the wrong things, but, you know, in that separate bit, only 1,260 people across Australia ended up doing that, getting the extra code yeah. to go the separate bit. And it asked you in that whole array of things, if you were trans, intersex, non-binary, it mucked everything up into one little subsection, and it's not a true representation of the diversity of our community. So I think that's another area that really fails. Um, one of the other things that we've always used data from the ABF to make a point when we're trying to do law reform about how many families would be families where one or more parent or carer identifies as LGBTIQ plus or non-binary, and yet we do our own, have to do our own population surveys, I guess, <laughs> like yeah. to try and expand that. The census will only tell us if there's same-sex parented families, literally, like same-sex female parented families or same-sex male parented families, which we know doesn't allow those families to say, this is who's queer in our family, this is who's identified as, um, you know, who is trans or non-binary in these families. People make this, you have to make, you know, quite hard decisions about how they identify themselves on the census to ensure they're even counted um, as a queer parented family. So you might end up with people giving information that then looks like their family is a male parented family, same male same-sex parented family, just because you couldn't find any other way to explain how your family is constructed. So we're not necessarily painting the full picture of family diversity in Australia. It's so flat and removed of context and um, it's like I, I keep thinking about how um, like you know critics of same-sex marriage or critics of um, any sort of like queer communities always say oh well the percentage is really low like you know this is a very this is a very small minority it's like well even in the opportunity where uh, you know queer communities want to make themselves known, they don't even get the opportunity to actually identify as such. Yeah, that's such a good point. Like, sometimes people go, oh, it's worse if we collect stats because it'll show that there's not many of us. And you're like, no, no, that doesn't matter. At least it would be the start of saying if no one fell over 
out of shock on census night, having to be faced with the prospect of this question being asked, because they often like, oh, people will get confused about questions that ask um, complexities around gender or sex. Most people don't understand that, and you're like, doesn't matter. They can just skip over that question. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not kill them. There's a bunch of questions I don't saying, understand oh, in the yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But like the other night, I went to. Um, before lockdown, I went to the movies with my kids and they had an AVS ad that came up and it was like, every stat tells a story. And I was just sitting there mm. fuming, thinking, <sighs> here I am as a queer parent and I've got um, a bi child and another child that's non-binary. And I was like, my, I can't fill in the census. You know, and it, the ad goes on and says, you know, every stat tells a story. It tells us how many local playgroups we should have. It tells us about you know, where we need to build playgrounds. It was all very cheerful, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I was sitting there going, I'm here watching this ad, the movies with my kids, and I can't tell an accurate story to the ABS about yeah. the way my family works. That yeah. there's two queer mums, they've, they've got a gay dad co-parent, and out of three children there's one who's bi and one who's non-binary. So I want them to know that I have a non-binary 12-year-old so that they can start to see that this is an emerging area of, um, you know, a, a population group. Mm-hmm. So that they can start thinking, well, what if we have all these young people that are non-binary across the country? We need to start thinking about the way we make sports so binary in primary schools or the way that we continue to have male-female toilets in public spaces and now schools and health centres. Absolutely. No, that yeah. data isn't getting collected. The sports and one is so important too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can get me riled up on that. One. <laughs> um. Like, it, yeah, if we, if we talk about, you know, um, looking after, especially, you know, non-binary and trans kids, you have to know um, the communities in which you're dealing with and the numbers of kids out there mm. um, to look after them appropriately, you know, if, if and also the thing that you were, um, we were talking about before about, you know, oh, we're not going to understand, like some people won't understand the questions on the form. Great. This is an opportunity to like, you know, find out people who don't understand it and think about how to like, you know, have those conversations as we go forward. <laughs> there should be a question underneath. Do you understand this question? <laughs> yes, no. <laughs> roll out training programs it would be amazing yeah exactly yeah i I try to i try to be sort of like think about the positive ways in which having a much more detailed census could have a much more richer experience for Mm. rainbow families but yeah it's so hard to see it when you see it so flat like that especially in advertising where it's all very cherry pie and like you know thinking about play groups it's like yes but what about my children Yeah, but also we've had to do advocacy ourselves by surveying our community within the Rainbow Families community, like, do you want a playgroup? And in the past, we've worked with areas such as Frankston City Council, um, Darabin City Council, and sort of worked out in the outer east in Maroondah and other places to offer training to kinder teachers, early childhood workers, to say, you know, when you come stumble across people who have to um, mums, like it's not the end of the world, this is what you need to do to be inclusive and they do live out here. We don't all live in Fitzroy and Northgate, you know. I think there's a big perception still that we're 
stuck in the inner city being cool and fabulous. Um, but actually, you know, I live in the eastern suburbs because that's where my kids chose the school they wanted to go to. And we're all over the place. And there's not a lot of opportunities for us to share that information. And then that means there's not a lot of opportunities for us to be part, actively um, included in our communities as well. That's such a good point as well. Like, the, it, it's not just inner-city families. We're everywhere. Yeah, and I think it um, it echoes such a familiar neglect um, from the government in particular, but from a lot of other um, like bureaucracies um, of the LGBTQIA plus community. You know that they are invisible or not worthy of counting, or you know, a, and that's a huge consequence, as you said, um, is you have to keep on continuing to advocate for yourself and, you know, do the research yourself and, like, conduct the statistics yourself. Um, and, you know, that's a huge burden, huge responsibility that uh, should be placed on the ABS. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And from our family's sort of perspective, like when people are trying to create a family and go and, you know, go to um, local or when they've got kids and they want to go to the local they you know when you've got a baby you go to your local maternal child health service in your community so you're you know you're attached to one in your local community and there's nothing more demoralizing than turning up with a brand new baby tired exhausted you know but also in this sort of state of elation and for someone in that maternal child health center to go this is unusual I've never seen one like you before or oh two mums that's interesting isn't it you know like there's a lot of that happens when people are just like oh I just want to live my life and here I am having to be a walking talking you know educational moment um, when all I want is to know if my baby's okay so that happens a lot too and I think if the data collected nationally you know it's used by local government areas to fund and plan and think about the services they need to provide in their communities if they could collect it and when we turn up at those local services and health services and primary schools and childcare centers we're not an anomaly they already know that we live in that community that we're part of that community and we don't have to drag our tired, sleep-deprived, time-poor parenting selves to another little training program. For sure. Um, And I think just uh, looking at the time, we'll probably need to wrap it up uh, pretty soon, but um, in terms of what people can do now or any sort of resources or websites um, that you know of that people can use in terms of maybe seeing if the ABS can incorporate more questions or even just getting help Um, if you are in that community? Um, I think, unfortunately, the census is all printed and already being distributed, so we're not really able to change anything, unfortunately, um, at this point. But there will definitely be opportunities for people to talk about it and be um, review it again. And I think there's a lot more momentum this time. So for the next one in five years, hopefully we can see a change. But I think if anyone's in families or in relationships or in situations now where they're um, experiencing harm or they're worried or upset about stories like this coming out where they again feel invisible and not included, that one of the best resources you can call in Victoria is the Rainbow Door at Switchboard. Um, So if you just Google Rainbow Door, it will pop up and it's an LGBTIQ plus 
gateway referral service. So whether it's family violence, counselling, parenting support, they're a fantastic um, first point of contact. I highly recommend Rainbow Door. Yeah, thank you so much, Felicity. Um, and also, I mean, looking at the Rainbow Families website as well. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for having me. I'll go and get my teenagers ready for this. <laughs> Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> See you later. Bye. That was uh, Felicity Marlowe talking about uh, the absence of questions uh, about rainbow families in this year's census. And we'll be right back after this quick message. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Uh, next up, we have Accent of Women.